confusion. It just seemed to be a, a perfect description of our age. And no one knows what's happening. And I've got one book called Megatrends 2000. Perhaps you've seen it. It's written by the guy who wrote the first Megatrends book. And Megatrends 2000, he tries to predict what will happen in the next 10 years leading into the third millennium, approaching the year 2000. And uh, he said something interesting that there would, there is and would be a spiritual revival. This is a secular book. You can buy it in any bookstore. And when I read that, I thought, well, that's great until I read the rest of it. That although there seems to be a religious revival, there's a religious revival on all fronts, not just in Christianity, but in Shintoism, the New Age movement, anything that smacks of spirituality, people are looking for answers. And no one knows what door to pick, door number one, door number two, or door number three, which has the best answer. And it seems that people are trying to give a variety of explanations that sound plausible to explain the meaning of life. And the book said that though there's a spiritual revival, there's a breakdown in the traditional values and morals, especially among baby boomers, people like us. He said that according to a Gallup poll, 94% of the American public say they believe in God. And yet there's such a confusion among them. There's also an increase, I've noticed, and rightly so, in the possibility of this being the end times on all fronts, not just in the Christian community, but it seems like in the scientific community, the biological, ecological community, people are just saying, we've raped our planet and our natural resources. We've created nuclear bombs. We're going to blow each other up. And it seems like the doomsday prophets are those who are not Christians, who are saying that the world is going to end and we don't have much time left. Then I was thinking of some of the developments this last year. I think the number one issue being the Gulf crisis. Where back in the summer, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, tried to pay off its debts, ruined and hurt and killed many of its citizens, many of whom I spoke with when I was in Jordan last time at the Iraqi border. And yet, although Saddam Hussein has performed many acts of terrorism, we are waiting as to see what he will do next. And I am really curious, especially that he says he will make Israel his first target. I don't really believe he knows what he's stirring up. Because Israel isn't as nice as we are when it comes to fighting. They don't care who they take with them. And I think they'll be more indiscriminate than we would be. But he's trying now to bring in the Middle East, especially Israel and the Palestinian West Bank settlement, as the central issue in this whole thing. He went on record as saying, quote, The Palestinian question is, in our view, the cause of all the other problems in the Gulf. It's the cause of all of the other problems. It's not my fault that we're in Kuwait. Israel's the problem here. And Saddam Hussein is speaking against Israel as being the oppressor of the Arabs, killing the Arabs, hurting the poor Palestinians. And it's interesting that it was not Israel, but Saddam Hussein, who so far has used poison gas on other Arabs. And Saddam Hussein has killed more of his Arab brothers than any one or any time of Israel. He's the one that's killed him. He invaded and is destroying another Arab country, and he's blaming Israel for it. 
He's the one that's been killing them. He fought against Iran. He used the poisonous gas, not Israel. And now he's saying he's the leader of the holy war, the jihad. And he went on record again as saying, we believe that because we're on the side of truth, we're on the side of God. And because God is with us, everything will be in our favor. Because no one shall be defeated if God stands with him. People like that are dangerous. When they believe God has given them the excuse to kill millions of people, those people aren't to be negotiated with very easily. And yet though he's saying this, and though many of you, Bill is perhaps waiting to go to the Mideast, many of your husbands or your sons have gone, I would hate to be the leader of a nation that is prophesied against so much as the nation that Saddam Hussein runs. I'd hate to be the ruler of that kind of a country. Because the Bible speaks about Babylon being destroyed with fire and brimstone like Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and those prophecies concerning it in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel have not been fulfilled yet. The first time when Babylon was taken over, ancient Iraq, when it was taken over, by the Medes and the Persians, most of the Babylonian citizens didn't even know what happened until about three to four days later. It was a silent takeover. They just assumed power. But the Bible says that it would be so destroyed that no one would ever inhabit it again. The Bible says that in Revelation chapter 18, the kings of the earth will stand afar as Babylon is destroyed in the space of one hour. And they will be afraid to come forward for fear of her torment. So we don't know, but that perhaps there is a setting up of fulfillment of prophecy. I'm not going to say definitely, but again, I would hate to be the leader of a country that has those kind of prophecies against it. And to speak so much about God being on their side. Yet that doesn't mean we'd win this one. I don't know what's going to happen in the 15th. I really am praying. If all goes well, and I haven't heard from my friend Franklin yet, we'd be leaving Tuesday to go over to Jordan. I wanted to share something with you before we moved on, and that is um, Franklin, my friend Franklin Graham, who spoke here a couple months ago, he got a phone call from the Pentagon. Not about the tracts that we sent, but he sent 30,000 Arabic Bibles to that country, and the Pentagon, Schwarzkopf said, find out who this guy is. The Pentagon called him and said, you sent 30,000 Arabic Bibles into our country, Mr. Graham. We want you to cease. And Franklin said, no, why would I want to do that? He said, because it's against the law. He said, is it against Saudi law or American law? He said, it's against Saudi law. He said, well, I'm an American citizen. And I'm not part of your military. And he said, well, you're ordered by the Pentagon to cease this activity. And Franklin said, I would like to see a letter with Pentagon letterhead on my desk that says I'm deceased. And I will. But I'll also make it public so the American people will know that our people can shed their blood in foreign soil but aren't allowed to bring anything religious in the country. I'd like our people to know just how the Pentagon handles these things. (laughs) 
And then Colonel Peterson called him, who's in charge of the, now they call them morale officers rather than chaplains. But he's a born again, he's an evangelical Christian. He said, Mr. Graham, I appreciate what you're doing, but this is some sensitive stuff. If you would send your materials through me, I'll see that they get into the right hands. No, seriously, he's not bluffing. He said, in fact, we request, if you could send some Christian literature to our troops, send uh, Decision Magazine by Dr. Billy Graham, your father, and on and on and on. Steps to Peace with God, tracts that are in English that our troops can read, because he said, in tents right now, there's hundreds of these soldiers that are meeting for Bible study under the cover of a tent, but they meet, and they're hungry for the Lord, and they're reading, and they're open. He said, I'll send them to you right away. We're sending about 600,000 pieces of literature over there through him. And then Franklin said, just when you leave, just don't take these pieces of literature with you. Just throw them in the dirt. And Dr. Colonel Peters said, I appreciate what you're trying to do. Don't worry. Then last Sunday morning, a woman came up to me from... Atlanta, Georgia, she said, I just want to thank you. I appreciate all that you're doing here and praying and supporting and sending stuff to our troops. I said, what's your name? She said, Mrs. Peterson. She said, my husband is Colonel Peterson in charge of all the troops in, in the Mideast, and I just really appreciate all that you're doing. I thought, Lord, that's great. Confirmation. But we ought to be praying for what's going on over there because the next couple weeks are really treacherous as this strong man is still posing a threat to the rest of the free world. Then I think of the past year about the issue that has divided the nation internally perhaps more than any other other issue, and that's abortion. It's become the political issue, the rallying point, the dissension point. Uh, Groups are markedly divided. There's anger on both sides, and understandably so. But if you just think about it, in the last 17 years, 26 million Babies have been killed by abortion. And now the American public has been, as one person put it, Nazized into believing that this life is subhuman and unnecessary and expendable with no human rights whatsoever. Just like the Germans thought about the Jews in World War II. Subhuman. They're not really as human as we are. Thus, they're expendable. And to solve the Jewish inconvenient problem, they exterminated six million of them. You know, what really is fascinating to me is that a lot of the bumper stickers and the people that put these visualized world peace bumper stickers on their car will advocate abortion. The most criminal, violent act that there is, probably. And yet, visualize world peace, stand up for animal rights. You have a fur coat on, oh no. Animals have rights. Well, what about these infants in their wombs? I mean, they, you can abort them, but you stand up for animals and trees and whales. And at the same time say, visualize world peace. Come off of it. That's our nation. Boy, we've come a long way. And then I was looking at entertainment tonight, and I thought that the 90s is certainly a decade of sex. Sex is shown on commercials, on miniseries like 30-something and homosexuality and so forth. It's just become 
the national pastime of America to focus upon sex. And no longer will they give it an X rating, but NC-17. Where they can sport their garbage, but not give it an X rating. And it seems like every year we're becoming more and more desensitized to it, so that even Christians will go to movies rated R with sexual scenes and all sorts of garbage, and it's like, oh, it wasn't a big deal, only three sex scenes in this one. And then I was reading an article that spoke about all of the millions of dollars we're spending to stop teenage pregnancies, and none of it's working. I'm thinking, you know, figure it out. (laughs) The repeated message that kids get in seeing commercials, television, movies, is that it's okay to have sex, and you're trying to spend millions of dollars to stop pregnancies. It's not going to work, because the messages blur the line of right and wrong. Where people don't know, is it right or is it wrong? I mean, they're saying it's wrong because you can get pregnant, and yet they say it's right in the movies. And it goes on and on and on. Yet, Jesus predicted it would get worse. He said there would be distress of nations with perplexity. That's why I've had you turn to Matthew 5. Because we often focus on what's going on, and I think the focus is here in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, the purpose of salt was to stop decay. The purpose of light was to dispel darkness. So this implies something about the world that we live in. It's rotten, corrupt, and dark. But it also implies something about us, that we are salt and that we are light. Now, God discovered a long time ago that this world was corrupt. We grew up and discovered that, but God discovered it way after the fall of man, way back in the book of Genesis. He noticed that the thoughts of the heart of man were only evil continually. That's what he noticed about man. They're only evil continually. And that's why God judged the world the first time with the flood. And that's why God will bring judgment upon this world ultimately in the end. But look at those words, salt, light. That implies something about you and I. And I think this is one of those statements that should cause Christians to lift up their head rather high and recognize how important our position is in this world. If there's any statement that should bolster our confidence in our calling, it's this one. Because in the midst of darkness and rottenness, we're to be salt and we are to be light. Jesus is saying, in other words, you are not like them. You are to be very different than they are. They're darkness and that's putrefaction. But you're to be salt, you're to be light, you're to be different. You're to be an influence on them. Rather than the world so influencing us that we crumble and corrode under its own weight and corruption, we're to be different, influencing it with the light of the gospel and, if you will, the sting of the gospel. Because truth does hurt sometimes. Now, as you know, salt, first of all, preserves from rot. In the ancient days, they didn't have refrigerators. They took salt and rubbed it into the meat because the meat would corrupt Otherwise, so they would rub salt into the meat and they could travel with it. It would keep several days. 
Well, that's your world. Your world is rotten. It is. It's like a pussy open sore. Oozing all wickedness all the time, isn't it? Well, you're to be salt. Not just being poured in the wound so that it will sting and you can go, ha, 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 ha. But so that you can keep it from ultimate corruption. Now, it's kind of moving ahead of us, granted, but you think it's bad now. Wait till the church is lifted off the earth at the rapture of the church. The salt is removed from the putrefying meat. It'll get really bad. And it'll only take three and a half years for it just to become wasted. And God during that time will judge the earth. Not only does salt preserve from rot, but it gives flavor. I don't know if you're like me, but you like a little spice in your food, especially if you lived around New Mexico for a while. You go somewhere else and you eat Mexican food and you think, this is like meat and potatoes or something. It's bland. I want the hot stuff. Give me jalapenos, anything, Tabasco. I need something hot. We want spice in our food here. Because so many times food without any salt or spice is bland and insipid. Well, life is that way. Life is insipid and flat and without meaning when you don't have a relationship with the Lord. It's just kind of empty and meaningless, and that's why people are so much involved in pleasure mania. And materialism mania. And you know, some of the wealthiest people that I've ever known were the most bored. They had the chance to take and spend all their money on all that they wanted, to chase their wildest dreams, to have everything they want, to pursue any pleasure, and yet they come at the end of it and they think, oh, I'm bored. Solomon was like that. He chased the wind. He chased after every dream. He partied, he got drunk, he hung out and did anything he wanted to do, but he said, it's vanity, it's vexation of spirit, it's all emptiness. Well, the Christian is to add flavor to this life. That's why insipid Christians, no excuse for them. You ought to add spice and life and vitality to where you're at. Although you are misjudged, aren't you? People think, oh, Christians, oh, it's insipid, it's flat, it's tasteless. They haven't tasted, so they don't know. But by seeing our lives, we should attract them to Jesus Christ. What a challenge in the 90s. In the war age, in the sex age, where people are looking for any kind of tantalizing experience to be salt to add flavor. There's one thing that I want to do, and that is to give flavor to those that I'm around. I don't want to be flat. I don't want to be insipid. I want people to look at my life. To be able to say, you know, I may not agree with everything you're doing, but there's something about the way you live that attracts me to Jesus Christ. Nothing could be a better compliment, can it? You know, Robert Louis Stevenson, the great author, he said, I would have entered the ministry, but every minister I've ever known was like an undertaker. And then someone else, in fact, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in his diary as if it was just, it was was a surprise. He said, I went to church today and I wasn't depressed. What a horrible kind of a Christian experience to live when people look at your life and think, oh man, depressing, insipid bunch. But then finally, not only does salt 
keep from rot and corrosion and add flavor, but it creates a thirst. You eat a lot of salty food, and after a while you say, please, would you quit bringing me glasses of water, miss? Just bring a few gallons. Because you're very thirsty and you want to drink a lot of water. Well, salt in our lives, as it's spread throughout our workplace and our family, creates a thirst. Again, there's that attraction toward the Lord. Are we creating a thirst? Then Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. But here's a warning back in verse 13. If salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In other words, be what God intended you to be or you will be crushed by fallen humanity around you. You will find yourself being corrupted. You will find yourself burdened and crushed by the very humanity that surrounds you if you lose your flavor. And you'll need to be salted again. Salt and light. Now, not only does light reveal darkness, but it shows the way out of it. And I think, in this dark world of the 90s, as we see all of these issues around us, more than just being finger pointers and saying, man, you're in darkness. Lady, you're in darkness. Say, you're in darkness. Jesus is the light. Can I show you the way to him? He will light your path. Can I help lead you out of darkness? into a place of everlasting light. I think personally that the next ten years, should the Lord take that long before He returns, will be a year and a decade of unprecedented opportunity as far as 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 evangelism is concerned. Unprecedented. I mean, I think right now of just Saudi Arabia. And I think that... It's so closed, it always has been one of the most closed countries to the gospel. And the Saudi troops are evangelizing our troops into Islam. And yet some of our troops are passing out the tracts that we sent over there. Those tracts could not get in that country under any other circumstance. Under any other circumstance. And it could be that even one person in Saudi becomes a believer. And that would be very radical to see one Saudi believer in that country, but he could turn out to be somebody that would spread the light and the salt around. It's an unprecedented door. And I think if you see the door opening a little bit, just go that direction. It doesn't have to be that wide for us to walk in. To see it and then just to enter into it. In fact, when Franklin was talking on the phone to this Dr. Peter, uh, Colonel Peterson, he said, Hey, do you think my father could come over to Saudi Arabia and hold a crusade? Now, this has never been done. Just for the troops? And he said, um, would he come? He said, sure he would. I think he would. I'll ask him. <laughs> he said, how would he conduct his service? Franklin said, however you tell him to conduct it, he'll conduct it. If it's just for the troops in their camps, if you can arrange it with the government, they'll do it. And he said, I'd like to bring a few other of my friends over. And he asked me to go with him if it works out to go to some of the other encampments where our troops are and hold some little crusades for them to get the gospel out. And I'll tell you right now, and it's an unprecedented opportunity for us to share with our troops. Their life's on the line. and They're open. They know that eternity could be right before them. Well, before we continue in worship, let's bow our heads. In fact, let's just hold one another's hands. Token of unity and let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
as you have laid before us a path that is untrodden by us, we look to the future and we see that path before us. But Lord, on either side of the path, we see the darkness and the putrefaction. It's pulling at us. It's trying to swerve us off the path. Trying to get us to slow down. To get involved in its corruption. To get involved in other things that really don't matter in the realm of eternity. So Lord, uh, help us to keep our eyes open, straight ahead, and moving in the right direction. I pray that this new year and this decade would be a time where our own personal lives would blossom into fruition. And we would see effectiveness in our lives like we've never seen it before. Give us spiritual eyes and wisdom to see opportunities and doors. And make us less and less content with just taking in all of the blessing and not giving any of it out. Help us to be channels, Father, of your grace and your blessing to other people, to create a thirst in their lives, to prevent corruption when we're around certain people and certain activities, and to glorify you, for we ask it in Jesus' name.